Ladies and gentlemen, here it is. The most listened to radio show on the planet. Even the other stations are tuned in too. Welcome to your favorite station, HM101, where we play all the biggest rocket hits from the good old days. It's your hosts, Eric and John. And this is Heavy Metal 101! For certain fawn-like youngins, this may be hard to believe, but there was indeed a time when heavy metal ruled radio, music television, and much of popular culture. John! You're a fawn-like youngling. Can you believe this? Sure. Uh, why not? I appreciate your willingness to come with me on this journey of the mind. I, you know, I'm always up for an adventure. Amen. And so it's true. T- today, we're going to discuss not one, not two, but three albums that all sold over 10 million copies. It's a lot of landfill in this modern digital media age in which we find ourselves, no? (laughs) Think of all those Quiet Riot albums just piling up. Love that. Mm -hmm. Aside from selling a zillion albums, one of today's band also has the very special honor of being the first heavy metal band to reach number one on the Billboard album charts. You have any idea who that might be? I'm going to guess Quiet Riot. Ooh, all right, all right. That's John's guess. We're going to check back and see if you're right. There'll be prizes, maybe. Wait, no. Wait, was <laughs> Def Leppard one of them? Def Leppard was one of them, too. Uh, I'm going to ch- I'm gonna change my guess to Def Leppard. Okay, okay. So were you sticking with Def Leppard? Sure. All right, all right. Prizes on the line. You going to buy me lunch? Yes, if you're right, I'll buy you lunch. Well, you already know the outcome. <laughs> I'll buy you a big lunch. <laughs> but we'll get to that. We're also going to meet the band that was probably most responsible for paving the way for heavy metal's utter dominance of 80s television screens via MTV. Twisted Sister. You're worthless and weak. John, we're going to watch music videos for this episode. Perfect. Videos on a podcast. People love it when people watch videos on podcasts. Everyone loves it when two old guys describe something that no one else can see orally. <laughs> so, am I correct in assuming that by the time you came of age, MTV was basically all reality TV all the time, and that you have not, to date, logged a vast amount of time watching rock and pop short-form music videos? I think that chronologically speaking that is accurate, but I never watched MTV anyway, so I have no idea what was on MTV when I was growing up. Okay, so MTV just wasn't really a part of your adolescence. No. Hmm, I see. Now, to provide a bit of context, we're going to need to chat about the rise of MTV today, as it most definitely played a key role in the ascension of heavy metal in popular culture. This shouldn't be a huge surprise, of course, because as we have previously discussed, heavy metal has pretty well always been as much a visual as an audio medium. As such, it was particularly well-suited for MTV. I must confess that large swaths of my own adolescence were indeed devoted to sitting in front of the TV screen, watching a seemingly endless parade of videos I didn't remotely care about, all in the hopes of catching that week's fantastically exciting heavy metal hit. It was a different world. It truly was, very, in, in so many ways. Very different, very different. You should have seen how we got our pornography back then. Mm. Uh, of course, for I don't any... know why we had to go there. Because <laughs> that's where we go. That's where we Who go. is this we? <laughs> Who is this we? John and Eric, go into the pornography. <laughs> 
Well, if we ever release an album, that's a <laughs> debut album title. <laughs> going to the pornography. Of course, for any self-respecting metalhead, Headbangers Ball, which aired on MTV on Saturday nights from 1987 through 1995, was really where the serious magic happened. But alas, today's episode predates the emergence of the ball, so we'll have to save discussion of that delightful institution for another time. John, what do you know about the history of MTV? Nothing. Let's say nothing. I'm sure there are little things that I'll recognize as like, oh yeah, I vaguely remember hearing that, but uh, truly, this is not a part of my life in any way, shape, or form. Well, for those of us who came of age in the 1980s, MTV was then a different beast entirely from how people who grew up later might remember it. See, music television launched on August 1st, 1981 at 12.01 a.m. in the Eastern Time Zone. Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. As most people, including I suspect John, probably know, the very first video played, rather appropriately, was the Buggles, Video Killed the Radio Star. <laughs> Something, however, I suspect considerably less people know is that the first heavy metal video played on MTV was the 16th video that was aired. That would be a video for the song Iron Maiden from the debut album by our beloved band of that same name, Iron Maiden! So as much as MTV played the ever-loving hell out of pop and new wave videos back in those early days, they really always did also provide something of a forum for heavy metal. Which brings us to today's first band of pop metal maestros. We're going to begin with a band that has already played a shockingly large role thus far in this second season of ours, and one which will, after this episode, bow out gracefully from the pop metal ranks as they were to grow so damn poppy that even I have trouble considering their later work through a heavy metal lens. I am, of course, talking about Sheffield, England's most favoritest sons, the often delightful, if not always terribly heavy, Def Leppard. You excited? So excited. Yeah! Love people who can't spell. I think they can spell. I think they choose not to. We don't know that. No, I couldn't guarantee it. MTV were playing Def Leppard as early as their 1982 video for the power ballad, Bringing On the Heartache. Do you remember that one? Nope. We did listen to it. Did we really? I don't <sighs> even remember that title. Wow. Yeah, it's a great song. Okay. Great song. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and it was certainly to play a large role in the pop phenomena the band were to become. John... This makes three different Def Leppard albums on three different season two episodes. I can actually feel the anger rising like heat from a subsection of our audience that is currently screaming into the void about Def Leppard being, quote, a goddamned hard rock band. How do you feel about all this? Is the Def Leppard you've heard this season heavy metal? or not, according to your refined, delicate sensibilities. Well, before we started recording, I did say, you're gonna have to redefine for me how any of this classifies as metal because it does all just kind of sound like sort of rock, rock. I guess hard rock yeah. to me. Uh, yeah, John John really did bring that up. John talks about these things off there. You're not as cynical as you would lead us to believe. You, you care. You do. Little, a little bit, a little tiny bit. You search, you search for answers. <laughs> okay, so here's what I'll say. <clears throat> Prior to 1987's Hysteria, an album, incidentally, which sold well over 20 million copies, Def Leppard were pretty universally understood as a heavy metal band. 
Even after that album, which was one of my very own youthful sort of gateway to metal albums, Def Leppard were a band that most of my peers considered as representatives of the lighter side of metal. Their videos were featured on MTV's Headbangers Ball, and their handsome mugs were included in all of the standard heavy metal periodicals of the day. I'll admit that heavy metal did get considerably heavier over the course of the 1980s and beyond, and I think this has caused some retrospective reevaluation of pop metal into hard rock. Personally, I think of this as revisionist history. I am more than willing to allow that Hysteria was a clear effort by the band to distance themselves from metal and to attract a larger pop audience, but I'm still quite comfortable putting all of the earlier Def Leppard albums into the pop metal canon, and that's what we're going to do. So, John, can you live with that? Sure. Yeah. It makes no difference to me. Yeah. You're I mean, the one that has to field the emails. Oh, it's going to get hot and heavy. Imagine the voicemails. Have we gotten a voicemail? I still haven't checked to see if I know how to Perfect. do it. Perfect. <laughs> I assume, I'm assuming the, the mailbox is now full, so those who are angry are going to be unable to leave messages, <laughs> Even and their, their rage will have no release. And, uh, yeah, yeah, That's always healthy. It's going to get explosive. Before we get into album details, let's hear what it is we're working with. Because this particular episode is all about popularity, I'm going to take a slightly different approach to our assigned listening. For each of the albums we discussed today, I'm going to offer two assignment options. First off, I will suggest the biggest hit from each album. This will afford those weirdos who grew up chained to a radiator in the basement like John, who perhaps don't have a lot of experience with these songs, an opportunity to hear what all the fuss was about. To make things extra fun, the links we're providing are going to be to the MTV videos of each of these mega hits. John, how fun is that? We love videos. Videos! All of the mega hits we'll discuss today are total classic rock radio standards now. So for those of you who would be happy to never hear these delightful but overplayed songs again, the second assignment option today will be deep cuts that I think illustrate something of value about the band in question. So does this make sense, John? The listener can choose the top hit video or the deep cut audio or both or neither. It makes sense. I'm opposed Mm -hmm. to giving anyone choices, but yeah. it makes sense. Okay. It's lucky for all of us that you don't rule the world. No, you have no idea how true that is. Whew. Would I be first up against the wall? No. Oh, good. Good. No. Good. No, but the people who wrote emails about me, they're gone. <laughs> the people who are currently screaming into the void. Yeah, gone. <laughs> okay, then. The Def Leppard album under discussion today is 1983's Pyromania, which was basically a mega-hit machine. Four of the tracks on this album comfortably could qualify as mega-hits, but the biggest of all was the first single, which made it all the way to number one on the Billboard mainstream rock charts in 1983. That would be Photograph. So for those of you who have, like John, frittered your lives away under a rock, that one's for you. Pause the podcast and click on that link in the show notes. My deep cut of choice actually immediately follows Photograph on the album, Stage Fright. It's my favorite of the non-singles on Pyromania and excellently illustrates the tightrope between pop metal intensity and accessible, memorable, lighter rock hooks that Def Leppard walked throughout this album. Great stuff. John, let's watch a goofy 80s video and then listen to a great album track that no one remembers. This Woo! is going to be oodles of fun. Love it. Your systems are offline.
Okay, so John, it's time for the big reveal. Had you ever actually heard Photograph prior to your listening for this episode? I want to say no. I, let me put it this way. Mm-hmm. I, I don't consciously remember hearing Photograph. Okay, okay. So you're not willing to guarantee that you've never heard it. It's just not something that stuck with It is you. certainly not a song that I listened to and went, oh, what was that? And then went and sought out. I could see that. Yeah, I could see that. I, I wanted to point something out to you that I neglected to do when we were off air. So I'm mm-hmm. going to do it now. Mm-hmm. Check mm-hmm. out song number seven of Pyromania. Rock of Ages. Does that sound like a familiar title to you? Mm. You mean the title of one of the singularly worst musicals ever created? Why, yes, it does. Thank you, Def Leppard, for providing the beautiful title of that particular I'm beautiful not, I'm musical. I'm not going to thank them for that. <laughs> Even you can't pretend to like Rock of Ages. No, no, it's a piece of shit. Yeah, it's absolute trash. So, back to Photograph. It is a great song, but like Stairway to Heaven and so many others that have been murdered by the limited playlists of our classic rock FM radio stations, I've heard it at least 10 zillion times and could probably very comfortably go the rest of my life never hearing it again. But you... You've got fresh ears and eyes. What did you think of the song and its delightfully dated accompanying videos? I'm assuming you'd never seen that video before. No, definitely not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you think of it? It's fine. Like, it's not... It doesn't feel like metal to me. Mm-hmm. It's very bored. I mean, we, we talked about Boston. We talked yeah, about, yeah. It, I did. It, that chorus gives me strong Boston yeah. vibes. To me, there's enough sort of ACDC 70s hard rock, heavy metal, pop metal, borderline material in there to balance out those Boston-like hooks. Sure, it's fine. I mean, look, it's not bad. It's mm-hmm. not brilliant. There wasn't anything particularly virtuosic about it. Except Just... for the direction and concept of the short-form narrative Well, let's video. let's get into the video, because I have nothing to say about the music, but the video was just... All over the goddamn we, we place. Had questions. We had questions. I've seen the video many times, but it's, I'll admit, I haven't seen it in many, many years. It doesn't make a lick of fucking sense. No. Th- there's a whole uh, initial knife motif that is completely abandoned. But in rhythm, which I found kind of interesting. Well, that's like, great. I mean, rhythm's good. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't like a stabbing gesture. It was just sort of like they flashed a knife on the screen. I thought it was stabbing into something. Uh, Maybe it I didn't get stabbing vibes. Mm-hmm. But there was the chalk outline. There was a chalk outline of mm-hmm. a body, mm-hmm. and then some lady that looks like Marilyn Monroe laid in the chalk outline, but it clearly wasn't her body. And so there's this whole in murder thing that never gets resolved and furthermore Mm -hmm. has nothing to do with the song not a thing and as if that weren't enough throughout there's an increasingly elaborate sort of post-apocalyptic hellscape thing going on with like women in cages but the women in cages do not show up until like the last third of the video (laughs) and it starts with just one Mm -hmm. and then suddenly there's like ten for could not have been more than 10 seconds. I have to guess that all of the women in cages were quite disappointed with the final edit of that video. You know what? If they got paid, they got paid. Mm-hmm. You might be right. You might be right. But it probably wasn't anyone's big break. Let's feel pretty secure in the statement that uh, none of those young <laughs> actresses moved on to greater success because of this video. Yes. It did work out pretty well for Def Leppard, however. So, Photograph is definitely a classic, both in audio and video form. It reached number one on what is now known as Billboard's mainstream rock chart, and number 12 on the pop charts, which is not too shabby. It's weird to me that one song can classify on different charts. Yeah, charts are weird. Charts are really weird. We could talk about that extensively, but... Hey, let's not. It's so fucking arbitrary. (laughs) 
totally arbitrary and mostly racist too. I love that. A lot of racism. That tracks. That makes sense. (laughs) It's an American thing. Yes, yes it is. Photograph certainly isn't the most metal song on this admittedly borderline album, but it has a very good riff and a tremendously memorable hook, and I happily welcome it into the pantheon of pop metal classics. Now, by contrast, what did you think of our deep cut, Stage Fright? It is a little bit heavier. Mm -hmm. Don't you think that this, this track more clearly illustrates this dichotomy between, like, pop and metal? It's got the pretty genuinely heavy metal riff and verse, and then a very, very poppy, how did you describe it? Wholesome. Yeah. <laughs> Overly a, wholesome. The chorus. chorus sounds wholesome. Yeah, yeah. I, sure, I, you could view it as a dichotomy. You could also just view it as sort of artistic confusion and not really <laughs> having a defined identity. However you want to frame it, it's fine. Who am I to judge? How many millions of copies have you sold? Uh, none. Yeah. None. Yeah. I've not even produced an album. Oh, that's so sad. How many have you produced? I've produced multiple albums. Yeah. You can go on Spotify and check them out. Hey, guys, Eric is a musician. <laughs> I didn't know that. You guys should check him out. How do we find you? Where do we go? If you look up Eric Schwartz on Spotify, you'll find first the Jewish comedian <laughs> and then... <laughs> The Jewish folk musician. You know what? It's funny because if you Google John McKeever, the first thing to come up is also a comedian. Really? Yes. What a small world. You know, uh, amusingly enough, so there's three Eric Schwartzes of note, assuming you consider me an Eric Schwartz of note. I don't, but go on. <laughs> we actually used to exchange emails because we got all of our ASCAP rights mixed up oh. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So shout out to the other Eric Schwartzes. If you're listening, Eric Schwartz, I hope you're doing well. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. So back to stage fright. Um, to me, it's this. This is sort of uh, effective musical schizophrenia. I think it finds a real sweet spot between metal and hard rock. And Def Leppard were able to capitalize massively on that sweet spot for the rest of the 1980s. It made them huge. This sort of half foreigner, half Metallica kind of image really worked out for them quite well. Before moving on, ye olden fast facts about pyromania. It was released on January 20th, 1983, and went on to hit number two. Number two. You, you, you're supposed to show huge disappointment. Right oh, now. So yes, because, yes, not number one. Who's not getting lunch today? <laughs> the real disappointment is if it's going to be Quiet Riot, and I just should have trusted my gut. That's, that's where... Ooh, I, so there's still... There's, there, uh, there's still... Well, I wonder what's going to happen. I can't remember the third band that you made me listen to. Could be them, too, but... There were honest, four bands! There were four bands! <laughs> <sighs> That's funny. <laughs> uh, now, why number two, you ask? Alas. I didn't. <laughs> this is what prevented you from getting a free lunch. Mm. You, you should be curious. Um, there was this wee little album called Thriller oh. that was holding tenaciously to the number one spot during mm. Pyromania's ascendancy, and Def Leppard had to settle for silver. This was also the album in which classic lineup guitarist number two, your favorite member, Phil Collin, mm-hmm. replaced Pete Willis. Willis did indeed record all the rhythm tracks on Pyromania, along with Steve Clark, and Colin just got to swoop on in at the last minute and shred a bunch of guitar solos. This album otherwise features the same lineup we've discussed on prior episodes. Joe Elliott, vocals, Steve Clark, lead and rhythm guitars, Rick Savage, bass, and a still gloriously two-armed Rick Allen, drums. Alas, 
Alan's left arm was not long for the world at this point. It was on December 31st, 1984, that he got into the car crash that led to his arm being amputated. But as of the recording and release of Pyromania, that tragic incident was still in the future. I love how you felt the need to bring it up, though. Well, it's important. One last fascinating fact before moving on. As was true of High and Dry, Pyromania was produced by super producer and future Mr. Shania Twain, Robert John Mutt Lang. This time around, along with the entire band, Lang actually got a writing credit on all of the songs. John, what do you think about producers getting writing credits? I think it depends on what they did as a producer. It yeah. seems totally viable if they were producing to the level that some producers certainly do. Yeah, I find it pretty fascinating. It certainly isn't the industry standard, though it probably should be in situations that you know, it's appropriate for. Now, obviously, Lang was integral to Def Leppard's transition from an excellent, fairly accessible Nawabum band to pop super duper stardom. Whatever he was doing, it most certainly worked. Pyromania is one of our diamond albums of today. Selling over 10 million copies in the US alone. Yowza! Okay, enough fucking Def Leppard. Moving on! We now get to meet a shiny new band that we have not yet- said shitty. <laughs> it doesn't say shitty. Right. Although you may, you may find them shitty. Far away. <laughs> they are a shiny new band that we have not yet discussed on this podcast. Isn't that fun? It's great. Maybe we'll learn something. Yeah, yeah. It's nice to actually learn a few things. I, actually, I'm sort of lying because they did come up in passing uh, a few episodes over. back. <laughs> we, we discussed their late, exceedingly great founding guitarist, Randy Rhodes. The band in question, of course, is Quiet Riot. Hey, I remember them. Oh, so 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 much for us not having talked about them. Uh, John, are you a Quiet Riot fan? I don't remember. I remember the name. Wait, of you the just band. listened. What about the playlist? Yeah, that was a whole day ago. All Eric. right, all right. I'll remind you in a minute. Well, here's the thing. Actually, I'm not a Quiet Riot fan either. No, they actually are a pretty shitty band. Hey, look at that. <laughs> so we're in rather unfamiliar territory here. In the greater scheme of things, I think that Quiet Riot is pretty mediocre. So much so, in fact, that their first two albums were released by their label only in Japan. That's I think a weird we'll, choice. It's from, Where are they from? <laughs> they're from America. They're from <laughs> Los Angeles. Interesting. <laughs> so would you agree that's probably not a great sign of label confidence? Uh, yes, I think that is a fair marker. Indeed. But Quiet Riot's third album, Metal Health, was not only released worldwide, but also earned the rather wild distinction of being the very first heavy metal album to hit number one on the oh, Billboard Top me. 200 charts. Always trust your gut, people. Uh -huh. Always uh -huh. trust your gut every time. You've done so much trivia, I would think you would have learned that I by never, now. Never. I will never. I think I will never learn that lesson. Yeah. Now, to continue our explorations of darkest truthiness, I must confess that I think Metal Health is a pretty terrible album. <laughs> It just happened to have two pretty great singles. Unsurprisingly, this album also definitively marked the zenith of Quiet Riot's exceedingly brief time in the spotlight. The follow-up album, Condition Critical, sold one-tenth of what Metal Health had sold, and our heroes were relatively quickly relegated to the dustbin of music history, which is sad, but maybe probably just a little bit justified. 
With all this in mind, our foray into Quiet Riot and mental health will be relatively short and sweet. Sean, are you okay with that? Yes. Mm -hmm. A few important facts about the band. Quiet Riot were formed in sunny Los Angeles way back in 1973 by beloved guitar icon Randy Rhodes and a bassist named Kelly Garney. Fun fact! In the late 1970s, an intoxicated Garney decided that he was going to kill Quiet Riot's singer, Kevin DeBrow. Alas, he was arrested for drunk driving while heading over to the studio to do the deed, so it never happened. Regardless, he was kicked out of the band after that little incident. Fun, no? Yeah, fun. <laughs> we love murder plots and drunk driving. <laughs> That's like where we live. That's our wheelhouse. I, the we of this episode is very, very curious to me. So, as I mentioned, the first two albums, which are truly fucking terrible, were both released in Japan in 1978. Eventually, this original version of the band fell apart, and it actually wasn't until 1982 that singer DeBro got things up and running again with a new lineup. The version 2.0 lineup that recorded Metal Health was as follows. Kevin DeBro, vocals. Carlos Cavazzo, guitar. Rudy Sarzo, bass. He was only then freshly returned from the time spent in Ozzy Osbourne's band, which he had left following the trauma of witnessing Randy Rhodes' tragic death. You remember that sad story? Yes. Yeah, yeah, very sad. And Frank Benali, drums. The bassist prior to Sarzo, a fellow named Chuck Wright, actually played on two of the album's tracks, including the rather iconic opener, Bang Your Head, parentheses, Metal Health. Let's get to some assigned listening and viewing so that we can get our ears around what Quiet Riot was all about when they were at their very best. Now, here's the thing. I can't quite bring myself to feature any truly deep cuts from this album. I really just don't especially like any of the songs on this album, aside from the singles, enough to merit playing them here. As such, here's what we're going to do. First, I'm assuming that everyone with a pulse has heard Come On, Feel the Noise. Uh, John, you have a pulse. Yeah, I have actually heard this All song right. before. All right, I thought as much. I think that in this day and age... I didn't know it was spelled like that, though. I was, <laughs> I was rather disappointed to see how it was spelled, if I'm I, honest. I thought that was going to be a source of disappointment. Can you tell everyone about the spelling? Com is spelled C-U-M. It's just so juvenile. <laughs> Yes, it is a bit juvenile. Noise. Noise is spelled with a Z. I didn't even make it. Oh. I couldn't get past the first one. Yeah, I, I, I can see where that would be difficult for you. Now, I think that in this day and age, most metalheads already know this fact, but were you aware that this song is a cover? No. Yeah, yeah, indeed it was. Uh, it's originally by the rather excellent 70s British glam rock band Slade. Mm. In fact, Quiet Riot didn't even want to record it and did so only grudgingly. And that it made them more money than God and all is well in the world. Now, in defense of Quiet Riot, you can blame Slade for the spelling. The spelling was theirs. It's original. It wasn't a Quiet Riot invention. So you, you feel better about Quiet Riot now? No, but go on. Okay. I imagine that some percentage of those who have heard the song have never had the joy of watching the hugely popular MTV video. So assigned listening option number one is a link to that very clip. I'm eagerly looking forward to watching that with John momentarily. Option number two isn't at all a deep cut, but it does get appreciably less contemporary rock radio play than Come On, Feel the Noise. This would be the aforementioned opening track, Bang Your Head, parentheses, Metal Health. If you've never had the pleasure, do check that tune out. Despite all the trash I've talked about Quiet Riot, it's actually a pretty great tune. It kicks off the album very effectively. Okay, get to getting. It's now time to pause the podcast and immerse yourself in pure, undiluted, quiet riot uh, mediocrity. Your show. <laughs>
<laughs> you know, I talk shit, but those are actually both really, really good songs. What, what, what do you think? They're fine. Mental Health is a killer song. You don't think that song was good? It's uh, it's not bad. You just you just kind of cruising on neutral here. Yeah, it's like okay, rolling down the hill. You know the thing my ear is always drawn to in all of these because I just find it sort of fascinating is the bass line. Mm -hmm. And you will note that in Metal Health, the bass line is one note. But then there was a that's cool. Yeah, there was that one little thing that I was like, oh look a thing, and then we were back to that one note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 grounded. It's very it's very grounded, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I will say, it takes skill to play one note in time with a consistent sound in a compelling way. But it's fine. But neither of these songs is something that I'm ever going to be like. I gotta go listen to it's, this. It's fair. I mean, the main thing I think, because I, you know, I know the entire album and a, a few other Quiet Riot albums and don't like much of it mm -hmm. at all, mm -hmm. is that the, you know, these these two songs are both quite good. Quite so, good. is it the merit of these two songs that bring them to the podcast today? Why are we talking about Quiet Riot? Because of because well, so we're talking about the ascendancy of pop metal, and this this album was the first heavy metal album to go to number one on the Billboard charts. So, is this heavy metal? This counts. Yeah, this totally metal health. You don't think metal health? Okay, but you can put words on shit. That doesn't mean it sounds like it. Eh? In the 1980s, unquestionably, without any doubt, Quiet Riot were construed as a heavy metal band. All right. I, I think in 2023, an argument could be posited that this music is not heavy enough to be heavy metal. But again, to me, that's, that's sort of revisionist because... It was designed as heavy metal music. It was perceived as heavy metal music. So to sort of shunt it away now because we, we we're embarrassed by it because it's too close to just hard rock or just straight ahead rock music. I'm not comfortable with that. To, right. to I, me, res I respect yeah, that. This That's is... a reasonable stance. Thank you. Now, for the record, I actually distinctly recall being really frightened of the metallic masked figure that was featured in the video and on the cover of the Metal Health album when I was at the tender age of just seven. It's creepy. John, did the Quiet Riot song and video both frighten and simultaneously inspire you to feel the noise? No, I didn't find it frightening, but in your defense, I'm now in my 30s. Not, not, not seven. seven. Yeah. I, I think what I found fascinating about the video and particularly empathized with about the video is that the first half of the video was just someone trying desperately to make the song stop playing. <laughs> it was like the, the, the John story, right? I could, I could totally see how you would have been deeply affected by that. <laughs> That's funny. I hadn't thought of that, but that makes perfect sense to me. Yes, yes. Uh, what about your mental health? Is your mental health okay? Sure, I don't. <laughs> who, yeah. who can say where my mental health even stands, quite frankly? After doing however many episodes of this show, I think what we've proven is that my mental health is lacking. <laughs> the, the real question is, is your mental health better or worse than it was before we started? I think that's going to be a point of view answer. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, we're going to we're going to reevaluate that in some future date. Can't wait. So again, I, I think both those songs are a lot of fun. I, I don't know why I can't get into the rest of this album. I've listened to it a billion times. I listened to it as a kid. I listened to it as an adult. Uh, it just isn't my cup of tea. I just don't like Quiet Riot's songwriting as a general rule. As much as I do like the original Metal Health and the cover, Come On Feel the Noise. Now, Metal Health came out on March 11th of 1983, 
but it wasn't until August that Quiet Riot released the single for Come On, Feel the Noise. That single made it all the way to number five on the Billboard Hot 100 chart and carried the album all the way to number one, baby. It's such an odd world, but Quiet Riot were indeed the very first heavy metal band to score a number one album on the Billboard charts. Metal Health eventually sold a cool 6 million copies in the US and 10 million worldwide. So apparently there are quite a few Quiet Riot fans out there. I'm hoping they don't all get mad at me for talking trash. It's really quite stressful, John. I think my mental health is declining over the course of this episode. Is this how you feel every day of your life? No, I don't feel. <laughs> I envy you that. Yeah. I do. It hurts. Do you have any further thoughts or questions about Quiet Riot before I usher us along into more dangerous, confusing territory wherein we continue to talk about bands I don't particularly like? Oh, I can't wait. Let's go. <laughs> I'm assuming you're enjoying yourself here. Well, me, I have uh... to say you being miserable is a fun new shift in our dichotomy. <laughs> I have a tummy ache. <laughs> All right. So let's keep things awkward and delve into some Twisted Goddamn Sister. John, are you a Twisted Sister fan? I, as is evidenced, I <laughs> forgot that they were a part of this so, episode. Uh, the, the, the playlist I made you really doesn't seem to have stuck in any meaningful way. Yeah, I think that's fair. Okay. But you didn't hate it. No. Yeah. No, none nice. of it made me, like, angry. It's better than uh, Rock of Ages, right? Sure. Yeah. Good. That's fair. Good. Now, this band definitely merits a photo, as I do think that visuals, both in terms of the extraordinarily well-crafted music videos and also the visual aesthetic of the band themselves, played a big role in Twisted Sister's brief time in the glaring spotlight of superstardom. John, please tell us what you see. I will, but before I do, I have to ask... Uh -huh. Is this a picture you've specifically chosen for to frame them in a light that is maybe negative, or is this just what they generally looked like? I will say, unquestionably, this is what they genuinely looked like. Yikes. This, this looks like a series <laughs> of midlife crises. So I'm going to start with the guy in the middle. Of course, the great D. Snyder. Okay, so D. Snyder has, like, a just exceptionally curly, long blonde hair. Mm -hmm. And appears to be wearing clown makeup. Uh, yes, yes, he's got like he's got his pace. His general base is vaguely white, like whiter than white skin. He's got bright red, rosy cheek highlights. He looks like he has on some red lipstick. Mm -hmm, definitely, he's got and then blue and white around his eyes, which is like distinctly a clown feature. <laughs> it's somewhere between. Uh, and light clown and hard drag, I think. Uh, yeah, I think that's fair. And it looks like he's saying, get off my lawn. Oh, yeah. You're very, you're like weirdly close there. Uh, okay. And then there are four other mm -hmm. like slightly more normal looking people. I'd say they're comparably nondescript. So <laughs> I try not to wallow in too terribly much nostalgia, but the 80s. Are you nostalgic <laughs> for this? <laughs> yes. Do you miss this time? I do. It was Beautiful. The 80s were a fascinating time in terms of those genuinely surprising things, like Twisted Sister, which popular culture briefly chose to glom onto. I mean, that's weird, right? Uh, who am I to judge? Who are you to judge? It was a decade in which a lot of terrible stuff happened, don't get me wrong, but I do find it endearing that five awkward, ugly dudes in particularly <laughs> gaudy rude. drag could briefly become international superstars. Don't you think that's kind of nice? Sure. Yeah. Gives us good gives for a, them. Gives good us for hope. them. We could still become superstars. We just is need that, to start. Is that the look you're willing to we, adopt? I mean, 
I'm, I'm I willing to pay a reasonable it. amount of money to see you dressed up as that guy in the middle. I used to wear uh, lipstick to goth clubs and stuff. Okay, that's fine. That's that's not clown makeup no. and a curly blonde wig. No, no, I never really... I never Twisted Sister did. Okay. Yeah. By the time they became famous, Twisted Sister had actually already been around basically forever, forming all the way back in 1972 in the great state of New Jersey. They kicked around the Northeast as an ever-increasingly popular but still unsigned club band for a long time. After a decade in those trenches, they finally managed to get signed and release a debut album, Under the Blade, in 1982. Good for them, sticking it out on the club scene for a decade. I know I don't have that kind of perseverance, and I'm absolutely certain that you don't either, correct? Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. We are both, to quote the bard, worthless and weak. Interestingly, parallel to the ascension of Quiet Riot, who had similarly been around in one incarnation or another forever before becoming fleetingly famous, it was with Twisted Sister's third album that they finally broke through, 1984's Stay Hungry. Also just like Quiet Riot, following this one mega hit, Twisted Sister's career pretty quickly faded into oblivion. Although, singer Dee Snyder has actually done an excellent job keeping himself in the public spotlight in a variety of ways, including writing, directing, and starring in a pretty solid horror film, Strangeland. Uh, did you see that one? No. Somehow I missed that yeah, one. I, I suspected you had missed it, but the story was actually based on a suite of two songs from Stay Hungry, collectively known as Horror-teria, parentheses, the beginning. Anyhow, part of the reason for Twisted Sister's popularity as a club band was that they were shock-rocking spiritual descendants of Alice Cooper with a darkly what? wacky, elaborate stage show. Yeah, yeah, they had them very theatrical. Remember Alice Cooper? Is that the show? only connection that just they put on a theatrical show? Well, they were huge Alice Cooper fans and sort of based their whole shtick on him, so I would say... Do you call yourself a spiritual descendant of Alice Cooper? Wow, that's really interesting. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. All right. I think I would. I'd never thought about it until this moment, but yeah. <laughs> they bring some of that into their music, but a lot of it is just blandly inspirational power pop, like the two mega-hit singles from Stay Hungry, We're Not Gonna Take It, and I Wanna Rock. It was in transferring their darkly wacky sensibility to the medium of music video that Twisted Sister were truly able to gain the attention and adoration of the public. Both of the aforementioned singles had extremely fun, memorable videos. John, have you had the pleasure of watching either of those short-form music videos? Sure haven't. Oh, my. We're going to have such fun taking a look at We're Not Going to Take It. I do assume you've heard that song? Yes. Yeah. The video portion of our Twisted Sister aside listening segment will indeed be We're Not Going to Take It. Now, as I alluded to earlier, as with Quiet Riot, I'm not really a huge fan of Twisted Sister. To me, both of these bands feel like the audio equivalent of big lumbering dinosaurs, soon to go extinct, as leaner, smarter musical mammals rose to metal dominance. That said, I do prefer Twisted Sister to Quiet Riot, and I generally like much of Stay Hungry, even if it is not one of my personal favorite albums. The deep cut that I'm going to suggest here is Burn in Hell which is a darker, heavier song than a lot of what is on this album, and is hence right up my alley. It also was prominently featured, along with a band cameo, in the film Pee-wee's Big Adventure. How awesome is that? What a weird movie. <laughs> it's all over the goddamn place. Yeah, very weird. Okay, so choose your poison, or chug them both down, perhaps with a venom chaser to cleanse the palate. You can click on the link to the We're Not Gonna Take It video, or to the audio for Burnin' Hell. Sound! Vision! Yes! 
Eric. Are you going to continue to take it, or have you finally seen the holy metal light? I, I have to say, I, I had way fewer problems with that song before I watched the video. <laughs> the video unsettled you a bit? The video was just all over the goddamn place. <laughs> I mean, look, I already spoiled the fact that I'm no profound fan or great defender of Twisted Sister. In my honest opinion, like Quiet Riot, they were a band of pretty limited abilities, both as players and as songwriters, who had the good fortune of being in the right place at the right time. Neither of these songs are transcendent or anything, but both are really solid. I mean, we're not going to take it particularly as catchy as hell. It was perfectly constructed to appeal to angst-ridden 80s teenagers all around the world. No? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's hard not to appreciate a good Animal House tie-in. The star of that video is Mark Metcalf, the dude who played Niedermeyer. Well, apparently had fallen very far. <laughs> I don't know, a lot of people uh, got to know him pretty well from that video. Very successful thing. Uh, Twisted Sister also helped to illustrate an interesting phenomenon that was beginning to emerge by 1984. Songs that were omnipresent videos on MTV that either weren't official singles at all, or at least didn't get nearly as much attention on radio and through single sales as they did MTV airtime. We're not going to take it hit number 21 on the US charts, while I Wanna Rock peaked at number 68. Better than you or I have done, but not exactly setting the singles charts afire. At the same time, it was impossible to tune into MTV in the mid-1980s for any length of time and not come across one or both of these videos. In Twisted Sister, we have an early example of a metal band who owed their success, principally, to their MTV exposure. That said, Twisted Sister didn't ever quite reach the hallowed pop metal heights of bands like Def Leppard and Quiet Riot. Stay Hungry, which was released on May 10th, 1984, sold a comparably modest 3 million copies and peaked at number 15 on the U.S. charts. These are certainly not unimpressive numbers and serve as further illustration that heavy metal was beginning to really make a dent on the Billboard charts and on popular culture writ large. I don't have too much else to say about Twisted Sister, but I do want to note that for whatever goddamn reason, We're Not Gonna Take It was listed by our censorious pals at the PMRC, the Parent Music Resource Center, as another part of their Filthy 15 list of naughty songs. Really? Uh, yeah, that's this was amazing. On the... <laughs> I know. It's, it's... For what? <laughs> Apparently the Housewives of Washington thought that all of us should, in fact, take it. <laughs> Hopefully we're going to tell the whole story in more detail on a future episode, but I will note that D. Snyder's testimony in the Associated Senate hearings was definitely one of the great heavy metal moments of the 1980s. But that is a story for another day. Okay, let's quickly review what we've thus far discussed before delving into this episode's grand finale. First, we looked at Def Leppard at the start of their transition from pop metal powerhouse to rock super duper stardom via Pyromania an album which I like, but which I do think is demonstrably weaker than its predecessor, High and Dry. Next, we discuss two bands who kind of sort of suck a little bit. Uh, John, did I just say that? You did, it's fine. Mm. I'm sure we won't get any angry emails at all. <clears throat> this episode is giving me agina. Quiet Riot and Twisted Sister were both veteran 70s bands who both released third albums that were blessed with tremendously catchy singles which helped each band very briefly catch fire before flaming out in spectacular fashion immediately thereafter. I genuinely dislike Quiet Riot's metal health other than the two singles, which I rather enjoy, and I somewhat sort of enjoy Twisted Sister's Stay Hungry, which is a reasonably pleasant pop metal album. 
John, by contrast, hates everyone and everything with equal ferocity and fervor. Is that accurate? I'm, uh, I'm an equal opportunity hater. Excellent. We're all caught up. So perhaps the takeaway at this point might appear to be that Eric and John don't especially love the pop metal of the early 1980s. But wait, dear listener. Forsooth, a savior doth beckon. I heareth the sweet song of a blonde Jewish angel from Indiana. John, John, do my ears deceive me? Has David Lee Roth come to save us from all this goddamned pop metal mediocrity? Ah, yes. I mean, sure, but more importantly, this is an educational podcast. None of your takeaways, dear audience, should be relevant in any way to what we think about this music. Hopefully you've learned some sincere facts about some of this music from the 1980s that was shit. <laughs> Thank you, John, for that beautiful public service announcement. I'm here to help. Now, more importantly than the arrival of the great Diamond Dave, He's brought the big guns along. Eddie and Alex Van Halen and Michael Anthony. And they are ready to kick our ever-loving asses 1980s synth style. That's right. Thank the fucking goddess. It's time to talk 1984. Oh! John, I love Van Halen. We talked about them quite a bit last season when we explored their epoch-defining debut. And you rather liked that album. What did you think of what you heard from 1984? Oh my god. You, you had me listen to. I like how you whisper. <laughs> I genuinely didn't okay. even realize Van Halen was on that playlist. <laughs> so Again, well, I turned it on in the background as I was working. <laughs> you are the worst human. Okay, so the two songs were Hot for Teacher. Oh yeah. I, you know, I don't think I, I like had ever consciously heard that before. Really? Yeah. Oh, wait till you see the video. And then House of Pain. I don't remember that one. She's pretty... All right. You you want to ask him the question now? I rescind my question for a later reevaluation. God, you suck. As I believe I've previously mentioned, I absolutely adore all of the David Lee Roth-led Van Halen albums. I even actually quite like the 2012 Reunion album, A Different Kind of Truth, as well, despite the fact that it lacked Michael Anthony on bass and backing vocals, which was a bummer. For me, however, the two best Van Halen albums will always be the debut and 1984. I know that there are many who will argue that if Van Halen ever really were a heavy metal band, 1984 marks the start of definitive movement towards softer pop-slash-hard rock territory. I do think there's some truth to that, which is borne out by the distinctly less hard-rocking Sammy Hagar-led era that was to follow, but I also think that 1984 as a totality is a heavier album than many people remember. Yes, the instrumental opening track and the delightful but not metal first single, Jump, hardly sound like the rocking kickassery of songs like Atomic Punk or On Fire. Yeah, I think you'd be hard-pressed to classify Jump as heavy metal. Yeah, but other than those opening two tracks and the mid-tempo I'll Wait, everything else on this album is pure molten pop metal perfection. Let's get into our final and by far most delightful bit of assigned viewing and listening so you can see what I mean. Jump is clearly this album's super crazy mega hit. It was Van Halen's only single to make it all the way to number one. It also had a rather fun, if simple, video. However, I'm now breaking previously established protocol because gosh dang it, there simply ain't nothing better in the history of the world than the Hot for Teacher video. Anyone who hasn't had the pleasure simply must watch this video. It should be universally mandatory viewing, and when I am the king of the world, it most definitely will be. 
As such, assigned listening option number one is the music video for the fourth single released from 1984, the absolutely incredible Hot for Teacher. Choosing a deep cut was considerably more challenging for me this time because I really do love every song on 1984. After weeks of sweating, praying, and deepest meditation, I've decided to choose the album's dark, moody closer, House of Pain, as the deep cut listening assignment. Actually, I mainly chose it because despite the fact it's awesome and quite heavy, of all of the individual 1984 tracks on Spotify, it had the least plays by a considerable margin. Clearly, this is a deep cut indeed. This is the good stuff, and both of these tunes will serve to remind us that accessibility and quality are most definitely not mutually exclusive. Pause the podcast, click the links, and dig on in. Viva Van Halen! Yeah! I knew it was coming. <laughs> I knew it was going to happen, and I still I forgot. It's just powerful. It's power. It's the power of Van Halen. John, is there anything found on God's green earth that affords more pure, perfect joy than the video for Hot for Teacher? Puppies. I do like puppies. What about snuggling with a puppy and watching the video for Hot for Teacher? That'd be pretty good. I could do that. Uh, it's, it's a fun one. And the song is incredible. A word for it. <laughs> Every mess all over the goddamn place. Yeah, but in a fun, in a fun way. Sure, the ending was cute. The ending is cute. I do like. I do like that kind of ending. That's, yeah. that's what you grew up with. There's your nostalgia. Yeah, it's a little bit of nostalgia. It's true. It's that's that's a fair fair comment. I'm gonna let the wonderful writer and journalist Chuck Klosterman sum up of Hot for Teacher. Klosterman says, "Quote." The encapsulation of almost everything Van Halen is known for, all within the space of five minutes. Athletic drumming, an extended guitar introduction that transitions into a thick principal riff, vocals that are spoken more than sung, two interlocked solos, and lyrics that are technically demeaning, but somehow come across as non-toxic and guileless. End quote. I think that pretty much says it all. What do you think? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, House of Pain, by contrast, is one of those very occasionally pissed-off, dark Van Halen ditties that I have an especially soft spot for. It's basically Eminem's I Like the Way You Lie, just 25 years earlier. John, could you read us the second verse lyric? Heartaches all around me, how many times we tried. Said she tried to leave me, but her hands were always tied. If I had it all to do, I'd keep it just the same. Gonna fix it so you never leave this house of pain. Pretty damn dark, right? Yeah, I like that it rhymed. Yeah, and it rhymed. Like some other <laughs> shit we've listened to today. So true, so true. This is the side of 1984 and the band more generally that I think people tend to forget because of all those fun party rockin' jumps and Panamas we're always hearing on the radio. Fuck, is Panama Van Halen? Yeah, oh, same wow. album too, also from 1984. Wow. I know. Uh, <laughs> interestingly, an early version of House of Pain goes as far back as the famous Zero demo that Kisses Gene Simmons produced in 1976. Great song. But honestly, there is not a single track on 1984 that isn't great. It may not be Van Halen's heaviest album, but I'm quite comfortable calling it a pop metal album, and frankly, one of the very best pop metal albums of all time. John, how do you feel about that? Whatever you say, boss. Mm. 
I appreciate your flexibility. Uh, it's certainly a fuck ton better than Quiet Riot, right? Yeah, I'll take that. Okay. Anyhow, I won't go into as much detail on this album as I'd like, because we've already been talking for quite a while, and I can see it's just about time for me to put you down for a nappy. I hate that. Please don't ever <laughs> say that again. Please never, ever say that again. <laughs> I'm going to have to add that to future episodes. <laughs> I will say that much of the creation story of 1984 was rooted in a response to the difficulties Eddie had had with the rushed experience of recording its cover-heavy predecessor, 1982's Diver Down. As a result, he built his own home studio, which he called 5150, named after the California legal code for the temporary, involuntary, psychiatric commitment of individuals who present a danger to themselves or others due to signs of mental illness. Them apples. Okay. Yeah. Which is where they wrote and recorded the album 1984. Frankly, this album was really all about Eddie asserting himself over both David Lee Roth and producer Ted Templeman. Eddie pushed and pushed to include more synthesizers this time around, which he played and in which he had become increasingly interested. He also absolutely refused to include any covers on the album. Eddie, more or less, called the shots on 1984. And it all worked real good. 1984, which was released on January 9th of that selfsame year, is yet another diamond-certified classic, selling over 10 million copies in the U.S. Like Pyromania, 1984 peaked at number two on the charts, also due to the sales monstrosity that was Michael Jackson's 70 million copy selling thriller. It's probably worth mentioning that Eddie Van Halen actually played on that album, performing the guitar solo on a little-known ditty called Beat It. John, were you aware of that particular little fact? I was not. Yes, indeed. For what it's worth, 1984 did make it all the way to number one in Canada. So Canada has that going for them. It also charted in about 497 other countries. It was a big frickin' deal, and deservedly so. John, I think we're ending this occasionally rocky, complicated exploration of early mid-80s pop metal sensations on a high note. I don't even want to talk about how David Lee Roth left the band after 1984, because that would bring us all down. In Eric's robust fantasy world, the 1984 lineup stayed together, Eddie Van Halen is still alive, and the band is still releasing kick-ass pop metal classic after kick-ass pop metal classic. Is it okay to you if I just cling to that lovely fantasy? Hey, whatever helps you sleep, buddy. Thank you. Any further thoughts you'd like to share about any of these four early pop metal classics or the bands that created them? No. Mm, good, good. Uh, it's funny to think that the critics thought that metal was actually dead by the end of the 1970s. Metal as an art and as popular media was just a wee little baby in the 1970s. As we can see, the 1980s really were the golden age, and this really only was just getting going in 1983 and 1984. But for now, we must bid our beloved public adieu before we do so, could you be so kind as to remind them of how they can get in touch with us so they can bitch at me for speaking ill of iconic bands like Quiet Riot and Twisted Sister? If you'd like to bitch at Eric for all of the awful things he has said and done, you can do so via email at heavymetal101podcast at gmail.com. Or you can leave a scathing voice message that no one will hear at <laughs> anchor.fm forward slash heavymetal101podcast. Or you can find us on social media through Facebook at Heavy Metal 101 Podcast. Twitter, we're still on Twitter. Yeah, we're still on Twitter. We're still totally exists. comfortable with that, but we're okay. still there. We're Twitter there. at Heavy underscore 101 or on Instagram at Heavy Metal 101 Podcast. Now, assuming you don't hate us forever because what of a 
big dumb jerk I am? We'd love to have your five-star ratings and or kindly reviews on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that might help to bring this podcast more listeners and help to make John's dark, lonely nights just a teeny bit less dark and lonely. John, I, I think it's your turn to sign us off. Say something witty and wise. No.